Thank you for being here. I want to extend a grateful appreciation to the elders, uh, to Chuck and Kyle for the invitation for me to fill in during Chuck's absence today. It's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to stand before you and share from God's Word. If you've been reading along with the congregation in our daily Bible reading, yesterday and today you would have been reading from the first eight chapters of 1 Corinthians. Today our reading is from chapter 5 through 8. We're reading about the church that was in existence in the first century in the city of Corinth. <clears throat> Corinth was an important seaport town. The city of Corinth was situated on a, on a narrow strip of land, an, an, an isthmus, if you will, that separated northern and southern Greece. Shipping and trade had made it a very important Grecian city. Acts chapter 18 tells us Paul spent a year and a half there on his second missionary journey. After being in Corinth for a while by himself, he was joined by Silas and Timothy. And through their preaching, a church was established there. After taking leave of Corinth, Paul visited Ephesus, Jerusalem. He went on to Antioch and to Galatia. But while he was away, he was concerned about the church in Corinth. He was concerned about the new Christians that were there. He was concerned about their welfare. And apparently, there was communication that continued between Paul and this new, new congregation of people. There were letters that were sent and received between them. Uh, Paul wrote at least one letter to the Corinthian church that we don't have. He made reference to that and what we call 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter nine and uh, chapter five and verse nine, when he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verses 10 and 11 makes it clear in this letter that Paul meant Christians, those Christians who were in Corinth who were engaged in this sin. This seems to have been an ongoing problem in Corinth. Now we must remember these Corinthian Christians were converted out of a culture that had little or no concern for what God thought about how they used their bodies. Sexual sin in Corinth was rampant in every conceivable form. To Corinthian society, this was their normal life. The temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, the Greek goddess of fertility was there. She was the patron goddess of prostitutes. And in a seafaring city like Corinth, there would have been no lack for opportunity for those who were engaged in that profession to ply their trade. In the temple, it said that there were many uh, temple priestesses with whom those who worshiped would engage in sexual relations as part of their worship to this pagan god. It was out of this environment 
that these Christians had come. Paul addressed this in the verses immediately preceding the passage under consideration. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say in verse 11, And such were some of you. But he says of their present condition, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. But although these had become Christians, they were having a hard time leaving their past life behind. The church in Corinth was a dysfunctional group at so many levels. Even in the readings that we have read already through chapter 8, we've seen that there was division in the Corinthian church. Some were claiming allegiance to Paul, some to Peter, some to Apollos, and there remained some who continued to have their allegiance claimed only to Jesus. There was quarreling among the brethren, some claiming a greater status for themselves because they were followers of one of these great teachers or the other. There were contentions among them to the point that they were taking one another to court over matters that they should have been able to resolve among themselves. They had in their midst a man who was living with his father's wife, a sin that Paul said would not even be tolerated among the pagans around about them. Not only did this church in Corinth tolerate this sin, Paul said they boasted in it. They boasted in their liberty to engage in such sin. In our further reading in 1 Corinthians, we'll see they, they had a problem with pride and arrogance, even to the point that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. We'll see that pride and arrogance on display again when we see the discussion about spiritual gifts. We'll see that some are claiming a greater status because they had one gift versus another. They were claiming that God had greatly blessed them beyond others because they had the gift of speech or the gift of healing when another brother or sister did not. These Christians were having a hard time giving up their love for human wisdom, their worldliness, their divisiveness, their arrogance, and their pride. And the passage under consideration today shows they were having a hard time giving up their sexual immorality, an immorality that was so prevalent in the culture they had been a part of. These Christians had a very misplaced idea of grace. Sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? It sounds like a world that exists where anything goes. An attitude about sex that is so casual. 
the society in which sex is considered just an act of the body, no different from eating a meal. But Paul wrote to change their mind, change their attitude about Christian liberty. Paul writes to the Corinthian church to correct this misunderstanding. They had taken his teaching about Christian liberty and perverted it to the point that they thought they could do anything they wanted with their bodies with no impact on their spiritual life. So Paul thought it was time to talk to them about the limits on spiritual, limit, uh, on spiritual liberty. Verses 12 through 14, Paul provides us with the attitude about liberty that they possessed and his answer. You'll notice that in the ESV, in the RSV, in the NIV, and maybe some other translations, put quotations around two phrases in these two verses. I know the King James does not place the quotation marks, and maybe other translations do not. But if you have a translation that does not put quotations around these phrases, I would encourage you to put them because it certainly makes their understanding more clear. Those two phrases are, all things are lawful for me, that occurs twice in verse 12, and food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food in verse 13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, the King James would say. Now, if you're a parent of teens, you're going to get what Paul is doing. You've had the experience when your child got maybe driving age, let's say. They've just gotten their driver's license and in a rush to run out to visit their friends at the mall, maybe they backed over the mailbox. And now you're talking to your teen. What happened? Well, Dad or Mom, I, I, was, I, was, I was in a hurry and I, I just wasn't paying attention. And what do we do? You were in a hurry. You weren't paying attention. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. His Christian children are making statements about their understanding of Christian liberty. And Paul is quoting their statements back to them. That's why it's important for us to understand these statements should be in quotation. They're not statements that Paul is making. They're statements that Paul is repeating that these Corinthians are making. This is the approach that Paul used to make his point. These statements point out the apparent problem that was going on in Corinth. These Christians had taken two spiritual truths that Paul had taught them, and they're right in their own context, but they had taken them so out of context as to pervert them and twist them to justify their sins, especially in this context, their sexual sins. They were saying all things are lawful. That is, we have freedom in Christ. They might have even argued, Paul, you taught us that yourself. 
We have freedom in Christ. And they had turned that liberty, that freedom, into an attitude that said, since salvation is by grace through faith, we have liberty to do whatever we want to do. Therefore, our sexual sins will have no effect on our walk with God. Now, that's so obviously false, but the point is not the truth of their statement. The point is they were coming up with excuses to justify and defend their sin, just like we do in our society today. They were saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They concluded there's no difference in one kind of appetite versus another. God created our appetite for food and there was nothing wrong with fulfilling that appetite. And from this, they apparently has concluded that if the appetite for food is legitimate and our appetite can be fulfilled in any way that we want to with any kind of food, then the appetite for sex is legitimate and that too can be filled in any way we want. Now, let's just stop for a moment and think about the arguments that they were making. I think it's safe to say that this would be an equally strong indictment of the society in which we live. We hear all types of excuses to justify, justify the flippant and casual way our society excuses sexual sin. We hear that God gave me these desires and I, I can satisfy them in any way I choose. Even heard recently on a TV show a statement made, it's just sex. It didn't mean anything. I can't help it. I just have these desires. We hear people say, it, it doesn't hurt anyone. And of course, the catch-all is everyone else is doing it. But the problem with this is it's just what it says it is. It's excuses. Excuses to justify and make right what is clearly wrong. Because the truth is not everyone is doing it. And the truth is someone does get hurt when sex is taken out of the context of marriage. And brothers and sisters, don't think that just because we're Christians, we won't be tempted with sexual sin. Sin is deceptive in all of its forms. We're reminded in James chapter 1 and verse 14, but every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The world may use the word addiction to describe sexual sin. The label may be wrong, but the phenomenon they're trying to express is certainly true because the source of our temptation is our own desire. And in the society in which we live, those desires can be fueled by a simple click of a mouse on a computer. And as a result, pornography is one of the most prevalent sexual sins in our culture today. 
We must prepare ourselves before temptation comes so we won't be lured and enticed into the trap of this sin. We must apply the, the Barney Fife method when it comes to sexual sin. You, you, you know Barney Fife, the deputy on the Andy Griffith Show, when Barney would say, we must just nip it, nip it in the bud. If we want to please God with our bodies, we, we must be mindful that what we put in our minds will control what our bodies do. We must load our minds with scriptural truth, with biblical truth, to stop the temptation before it has an opportunity to blossom forth. We need to have a correct understanding of Christian liberty. It is true that Christians have great freedom in Christ. Paul tells us that, however, there are limitations to that liberty. In Christ, we are freed from sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the power of sin over us. But that freedom comes from the Word of God. We, we must be like Jesus was when confronted with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Every time he was confronted with the devil, how did he respond? He responded with, it is written. Our power to resist devil, the devil comes from our having the Word of God in our hearts. Paul assures those Christian Corinthians they had liberty, but he also made it clear that liberty was never meant to be a license for sin. He tells the Christians in Rome in chapter 6, verse 2 verses, as he says, closes that, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. I love the way the King James says that. God forbid. Such an emphatic statement. God forbid that we would continue in sin. He tells the Galatians, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And as Paul is saying to the Corinthians in chapter 6, he says much the same thing. When he says, but not all things are expedient. Other translations will say helpful, beneficial, or profitable. All things may be lawful, Paul says, but not all things are going to be helpful. Christian liberty must be regulated by two very important questions. First, is it useful or helpful? A Christian needs to constantly ask the question, is this thing I'm contemplating doing going to be helpful or useful? The question not is not, is it going to be helpful to me? The question is, is it going to be useful to the kingdom of God? Is my involvement in this activity going to promote the kingdom or is it going to harm the kingdom? And if the answer is harm, we need to run away from it. We need to flee from it. The second question is, will it enslave? People who talk about sexual sin as, it, as if it is harmless either do not read or do not believe what the Bible says. The wise man Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5 
has a lot to say about this. He says, verses 3 through 11, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. He admonishes his hearer, keep, a, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength. Your labors go to the house of a foreigner. In other words, you become a slave to this sin. But he says, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body, and may I add, your soul is consumed forever. Make no mistake, sexual sin will enslave us. Sexual sin will destroy lives. Ours and those around us. Because Paul says our bodies have a purpose. He's about to blow their arguments away when he tells us that the purpose of our body is to please the Lord. In verse 13, he says our bodies are for the Lord. Now, the Greek philosophers in Corinth and Athens and throughout that area taught that all material things, including our bodies, were evil, were inherently evil. So it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. And apparently these Christians in Corinth had transferred this philosophy into their Christian faith. But Paul says, no, that's not right. He says, it's true that foods and stomach will pass away, but you cannot twist that to mean that we can do whatever we want to with our bodies. Our bodies have a purpose beyond satisfying our own appetites. They are for the Lord. Our bodies then are to be used to serve the Lord in the way we speak, in the way we act, in the way we dress, in the places that we go, how we handle adversity, and yes, how we view sexuality. The Corinthians were dead wrong in saying that it didn't matter what we do with our body. Paul reminds them that our bodies have a purpose, and that is we are to use them for the Lord. But we need to understand the nature of sexual sin. Paul makes three main points in verses 15 through 18. First, he says that a Christian who commits sexual sin involves the Lord in his sin. Now, Scripture teaches us that when we are immersed into his body, we become one with Christ. Scripture tells us that we are in Christ, and Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 that if we are in Christ, then Christ is within us. We can't put him on and take him off like an overcoat. 
based on this argument, Paul argues that if a Christian engages in a sexual sin, that sin involves our Lord in a manner that is true of no other sin. Sexual sin involves, Paul says, a union with another person. Regardless of what the world wants to say, there's no such thing as it's just sex. Verse 6 tells us that a person who commits sexual sin becomes one with that person. Paul even refers back to Genesis 2 and 24 to re reinforce his argument. Some of you are probably C.S. Lewis fans, as I am, love reading his works. C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Screwtape Letters, and some of you have probably read that. And in that treatise, Lewis says, every time a man and woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them. He says that bond will be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Sexual sin, Paul says, is a sin against our own body. The body is not, as the Grecian philosopher said, inherently evil, but the body is, the scripture tells us, inherently weak. The reason for that is because our bodies become so habituated very easily. We come to this life as a Christian with our baggage of past sins. We don't come to this life as a Christian pure as snow. And these habits that we've developed over our lifetime have to be addressed, they have to be fought against, and they have to be changed. That's why the Bible refers to our life on this earth as a battle against the flesh. Sexual sin, like no other sin, begins with our thoughts. Jesus told us that I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It all begins with our thoughts. And according to James, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And with sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We must guard our thoughts to control our desires. Lest we see those thoughts and those desires materialize into sinful action. And that sinful action lead to our spiritual death. In short, we must change what we desire. So how do we avoid sexual sin? Paul says we are to flee from it. Verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. To do that, we must be mindful of what we read. We must be mindful of the places that we go, the entertainment that we choose, the friends that we associate with. And when any one of these causes us to be tempted to commit sin, we must flee from it. We must be of the same mind as Joseph that we read about in Genesis chapter 39. When tempted to commit a sexual sin there in that passage, Joseph said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph did as Paul advised. He ran. 
he fled. He understood that this was sin, but he understood that it was not just a sin against his own body. He understood that it was not just a sin against Potiphar's wife. It was not just a sin against Potiphar, her husband. It was a sin against God. We must avoid putting ourselves into position where we would be tempted to begin with. We must avoid putting ourselves in a position where we would be tempted to violate our conscience and sin against God. But we have to understand the biblical teaching about our bodies. In verses 19 and 20, Paul closes out this argument with the instruction to teach us about the proper understanding we should have about our own bodies. Our bodies, Paul says, are meant to be God's temple. He says, therefore, sexual sin is different from any other sin. We, as Christians, have this extraordinary capacity to have God dwell in us. We're created in God's own image, a spiritual being. But yet, when God dwells in us, we are transformed into a temple. In the Old Testament system, there was a tabernacle, a temple. It was the place where God dwells. But in calling our bodies a temple, it says this is where God dwells. He dwells in us, the dwelling place of God. So Paul says to join the body that is designed to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, to one with whom we are not married, defiles that temple. But because that temple belongs to God, he says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And while God did not create us to be robots, he did tell us that we'll be judged by our actions. The actions that we take in these bodies that he's given us. You know, this is what the world sees. It sees our actions. And our actions come from the decisions we make based on the desires that we have and the temptations we yield to. Our actions will either tell the world that we're really no different from them or our actions will point them to a new way, a different way, a better way, the way of the Lord. Some of the best encouragement we can ever have is found in the words that Paul wrote in verse 11. And such were some of you. We can see that regardless of what our past life might have been, regardless of the baggage that we bring to this Christian life, we can be washed we can be sanctified. We can be justified. We can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. The challenge those first century Christians in Corinth had was to live so they did not defile the body that God had made clean. 
and we have that same challenge today. Now, we're not all guilty of sexual sin. I certainly don't want to imply that. But we're all guilty of sin. Whatever that sin is, regardless of its specifics, for those who have been washed, those of us who have been sanctified and justified by the blood of Christ, we stand where those first century Christians stood. And such were some of us. We were that, but we're not that anymore. We're not what we once were. You know, maybe you've been living a life that's no different from the world around you. Maybe you've lived a life that has defiled what God has made clean. If that's the case, it's time to turn your life and your heart back to God and allow Him to purify that heart once more. We're sure that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it may be also that if you're sitting here today, you know that something's missing in your life. And it just might be that today you found what's missing. God has been patiently waiting for you. He's been waiting for you to return to be in fellowship with Him. It's wonderful to know that regardless of our past, we can have a new life in Christ. We, we can come to Christ and get what we need, and that is salvation from our sins. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know that we're here to answer your questions. If you want to know more about this Christian life, we'd love to talk with you and share with you what Jesus can do for you in your life. If you're ready to be joined with Christ in baptism, we'd love to assist you with that even now. Whatever your need, we extend God's invitation to you. We encourage you to come and express that need as we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.